What's up, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of the Legendary Life Podcast. I'm your host, Ted Rice. This is the show that's all about taking your health, body, and life to that next level. I've got an amazing episode for you today, but first, I want to ask you, have you checked out the workouts in our store? We've got three different workouts. We have the Legendary Workout Program, which is the program that people have gone from not being able to do one dip or one pull-up to doing a bunch of dips and a bunch of pull-ups and even weighted pull-ups and weighted dips, depending on how far in the program you go. And this is a nine-month program is what I have available for you. So ask yourself, where else can you find nine months of progression in a row where each month is building from the previous month. Well, that's what I have in store from you. Of course, you can buy it in different sections. We also have the muscle building workout or what I'm calling the body transformation workout because it is a powerful workout to transform your body if you're looking to build more muscle and to burn fat in the process. And we also have the fat loss workout, which is It's not as good for putting on muscle, but it is great for challenging you in a way that will get you to burn more calories in your workout, leading to more fat loss. And of course, your nutrition, your lifestyle has to be on point or at least in the ballpark for you to get those results. But these workouts can help take you to that next level and they're most likely better than what you're doing right now. And I'll let you be the judge of that. Go to legendarylifepodcast.com, click on the store, check out what we've got going on with the workout programs, three different series to choose from. I'll let you go check him out. On to today's guest. His name is Joel Seedman. He's back for his third time, and he has the website Advanced Human Performance. And there's a reason I've asked Joel to come back on a third time, because he's such a wealth of knowledge. I feel like I have several more hours to speak with him, to even begin to scratch the surface to know where he's coming from. Now, he was on in the past where he's talked about eccentric isometrics. He's talked about other things as well. In fact, I rewrote the legendary workout program based on his eccentric isometrics information to start to include them into the workout, not for all phases of the workout, but for some phases of the workout. And today he's here to talk about a few different things. We're going to talk about movement patterns. We're going to talk about inflammation. We're going to talk about supplementation. And Joel knows a lot about all these things. We're going to talk about diet a little bit as well. But Joel's going to get into what is optimal health and how we can achieve it through his perspective, through his perspective of working with so many professional athletes like NFL athletes. And I'm talking about the quarterbacks here in his plays in Atlanta, where he trains all these athletes. We're also going to hear about how some of these athletes train and and why maybe you should train a bit more like an athlete. And you'll start to understand once we get into that conversation what exactly that means in case you said, well, hey, I'm never going to play in the gridiron. I'm not going to play in the NHL. I'm not going to be a professional hockey player. But I want you to listen to the episode and see if we can't convince you that maybe some of the same concerns that an athlete has, like being healthy and maintaining your health and avoiding injury are not very different from what you want. Enough talk. Let's get to the episode with Dr. Joel Seaton. Dr. Joel Seedman, welcome back to the Legendary Light Podcast. 
Thanks so much. Thanks for having me on again. Always excited to talk to you, Joel. Like I was telling you earlier, just uh, quality information that you're putting out. It's just so good to have someone who's putting information out with a strong scientific foundation, even though I know being a person with a PhD, we talked about this before, you have your issues with the way research is, is performed sometimes, but this great mix of having the street cred as a strength coach and also having the academic background as well. So you can help us understand why we do some of the things that we do or why we shouldn't do some things and why we should do others. So it's just a, a, a real pleasure. I and mean, I'm learning a lot from reading your stuff and from speaking to you. Well, I appreciate that. I'm loving your podcast. Like I told you, I've been very happy with all the different people you've been having on and tuning into that a lot more the last several months. And uh, it's been very high quality. So for all the other listeners out there, keep listening because it's very uh, great information you're putting out there. Awesome, Joe. I appreciate that. And one thing that I want people to know about you, that you're a very modest and humble guy, and I appreciate that because I'm the same way. Giselle, my wife, actually makes me call myself a celebrity trainer. And since I've started doing better financially and business-wise, not just financially, but the reach of what I'm doing, I just listen to her. But I feel like you're that type of person. You're just super passionate. You're not in it for the fame, the glory, although it's nice to get those things, but you're really passionate about this stuff. You just love it, man. And I'm the same way, but people don't know you train NFL players and not just, I mean, all NFL players are great, but you train the cream of the crop. You're training NFL quarterbacks and linebackers and all sorts of of people. Could you just talk? and, And right now, as you mentioned earlier, you're in the middle of combine training. Can you talk about some of the athletes you train and, and what's going on now with the NFL combine training that you're doing? Yeah, for sure. Well, like I said, I've been doing it for, uh, Several years now, I had the chance to work with uh, quite a few NFL stars now. Taylor Heineke, Adrian Hubbard, Larry Pinker, Josh Hawkins, Jarius Wynn, a lot of guys now. And it's always, you know, a little interesting and tricky to see the new crop that I'm working with or, or you know, presently working with to see who's going to pan out and who's going to be a high draft pick or who's going to, you know, after several years, are they going to be able to to handle it in the NFL? Because it's, it's a very different game once you actually transition from college to the NFL, but yeah, NFL combine training, it's, it's very unique because oftentimes you only have these guys for eight. And if you're fortunate, maybe 10 weeks. So it's a slightly different approach that you have to take in comparison to what you would use for say a standard client, or maybe even an NFL athlete that I'm going to be working with long-term, you know, that may say, Hey, this off season, I want to work with you and keep doing that. These guys, short period of time, it's a pretty large group of guys and we have to maximize their test results. That's really what it comes down to. And yes, you know, improving muscle function is critical because by improving muscle function, that's obviously going to maximize their performance in a number of uh, various tests and biomotor capabilities such as speed and power and whatnot. But the key is we have to make sure that they test well because that's where you know these agents are putting all their stock in and then that's where all these teams are, are unfortunately looking at and I say unfortunately because oftentimes I think some of these NFL teams and, and agents they look too much at the combine numbers and they don't see the whole athlete as they should. I'm sure you discussed this with other strength coaches, you know, is the uh, NFL combine legit and whatnot. And um it is, but it's a it's a totally different ballgame altogether. Yeah, and 
I have spoken about that, but not on the podcast. So, right, because most football plays, I believe, are like 10 seconds long or something like that. But you're doing, I forget all the tests. Could you talk about the NFL Combine tests, what they are, just in case anybody isn't familiar? Yeah, so you got your, you know, your 40 yard dash, which is, you know, kind of one of the key ones, always trying to get guys as low as possible if they can break something, you know, especially a receiver or corner or some of the smaller uh, players, if they can break something like a 4-4, that's going to definitely increase their stock. They obviously have the pro agility test, the three cone drill, and all those are kind of speed and agility. But then we have some of the other more interesting ones as well. Obviously, you got the 225 bench press test, which famous, infamous, call it whatever you want. Some people think it's accurate. Some people think it's it's a you know load of garbage in terms of being indicative of what an NFL player is actually capable of on the football field. And then you obviously have your other two big ones, which is your broad jump and your vertical jump. And so pretty much those are your, your six big tests. They do have some other skills related tests they have to perform well on. But those are not as critical because, you know, they've obviously played in college, most of these guys, for four years. So the agents and the uh, NFL scouts and the teams, they've seen uh, film and video footage. So now it's kind of up to that point. They want to see how do they do on these tests. And so that's it can be tricky training these athletes for these tests because you get so focused on how well they can demonstrate their certain or particular biomotor capabilities, such as speed, such as power, strength, muscular endurance. You sometimes can easily lose track of some of the more important characteristics, such as stability, such as symmetry, which obviously are important. And I do make sure that, you know, during these eight weeks I have with these guys that we that we focus on that. But like I said, making sure they test well, that is the key because that's really where they're going to be getting paid. And, and that's going to determine whether or not they get chosen. Yeah. Whether that should be the rule or people should change it and and make it a little bit more based on like what you're saying. Well, Hey, is this guy going to break down? Is he unstable? Maybe he's doing great with these tests, but we put him out to play for a year and he gets beat to hell because he's got all these asymmetries and instabilities and he's strong as an ox, but he can't, the stability of his joints, isn't so great and he's inflamed because of horrible body mechanics and and a terrible diet. I've heard horror stories with some of these these athletes like I believe it I was listening to Joel Jameson and he was saying he, he he had this one athlete I don't know if I don't think it was someone he was training but the guy was like downing Mountain Dew and eating Cheetos before he was going playing a professional football game a guy in the NFL. And uh do, do you have any stories like that or yeah, I mean, you get some athletes. Uh, oftentimes, it's they're just nutrient deprived. They just simply haven't been eating enough. Some of these athletes, uh, I don't even know how they're able to function on a daily basis. <laughs> yeah, this, is, this is really common, and this really you can look at what they were doing in high school, what they're doing in college, and they just continue to follow that same trend. So it's it's pretty crazy. Oftentimes, their diets are not ideal by any stretch of the imagination. But occasionally, you do have some athletes that are really interested in maximizing every bit of genetic potential that they have and they are willing to you know look at all components of performance and fitness including diets including supplements but yeah i mean it's it's it ranges unfortunately some of these nfl athletes 
they got to where they were because they have incredible genes and not to take anything away from them. But some of these guys are so unbelievably fast. It just blows me away every year. We have a few guys that I'm working with. And once we got their nervous systems amped up from training them properly and, and working on implementing proper protocols such as eccentric isometrics like I've talked about in the past, working on their foot and ankle strength, teaching them how to produce force, teaching them how to absorb force, teaching them how to hip hinge properly, unlock their hips and get their posture dialed in. It's absurd how explosive they are. It just it, it makes me feel like a weakling. It makes me feel like a ultra slow twitch athlete when I see what they're capable of. But uh, yeah, I mean, some of these guys they've been able to make it oftentimes on genetics and uh, sometimes hard work, but oftentimes not smart work. So that's where they need to be reeducated, and that's what I try and do with every athlete that comes in. Try and look at the the holistic picture, body mechanics, obviously, diet for sure nutrition supplements to a degree without you know going too crazy on them and uh, lifestyle factors from alcohol to sleep sleep deprivation even <laughs> even a degree their uh, their sex life because some of these guys get a little uh, they get a little too uh, loose and casual and they can actually end up depleting their testosterone levels if they're not careful so yeah it runs the whole gambit yeah, and so important. And and one of the, the idea for the show today is really to help people because I'm I just turned forty on February second. I trained like a maniac when I was in my twenties. I was a Brazilian jiu jitsu athlete. Did strength training to support that. I thought I was doing a lot of good things, but I was horribly inflamed. Even though if you looked at me, you would have said, wow, that guy looks ripped. He looks like he's in shape. You know, I wasn't super strong, but my endurance was was exceptionally good. I could do grappling for 30 minutes. I, I remember doing a few grappling sessions with uh, some of my buddies for 30 minutes straight. If you know anything about grappling, it's, <laughs> you do rely a lot on technique, but if you don't have the engine to power the technique, that's not happening. You know, a yeah. 30 minute long grappling session. Yeah. So I love to, to really focus on the more like, how do we manage this inflammation that comes from bad body mechanics, from working out too with too much volume or too excessively and some, some of the other lifestyle nutrition factors that you help people with. But I'd love to talk a little bit about genes. I posted something on Facebook the other day about true or false. It doesn't matter about your genetic. I forget exactly what I said, but it was basically anyone can become a high-level athlete. Or I said pro athlete, but what I meant was a high-level athletic athlete, not drone racing or or you know whatever other <laughs> sport the smart asses brought up when I asked that question, but highly athletic, like a football player, like an NFL football player, for example, or NBL baseball player. How much does our genetic potential matter when it comes to how much that we're going to progress, not in a sport per se, because I want to make this relevant to the people listening. I don't think there's any pro athletes listening. If they are, they haven't reached out to me. But like for the average person trying to get in shape, should we care about this at, at all? Should we even think about our genetics? Or if there is a big genetic component, I mean, how do we stop that from limiting us mindset wise so that we just say, oh, well, my genes aren't good. I, I shouldn't put in the work. Yeah, that's a great question. I think it's one that's going to continue to be discussed for decades. And I don't think anyone's ever going to truly have the answer for that. Only maybe educated opinions, which hopefully that's what mine is. But I think genes play a huge role when it comes to determining which athletes can become pro athletes. But as far as 
whether or not everyone has the capability to become pretty athletic and pretty fit and strong and lean and conditioned and muscular. I think just about everyone has that capability because that often comes down to both hard work and smart work and looking at all the different factors that go into performance and go into uh, health and wellness and fitness and training from, as we talked about, strength training, diet, nutrition, lifestyle factors. But there are certain aspects of performance and particularly when we're talking about genetics. Fast twitch athletes, they simply have the ability to summon certain muscle fibers much quicker and turn on their nervous systems quicker and it's something that can be trained to a degree, there's no doubt about that. And you can really take an athlete who is struggling with speed and with explosive power and vertical jump performance. I, I do this a lot with athletes, able to put on, you know, good four, five inches on their vertical jump, uh, as much as a foot or more on their broad jump, take tenths of seconds off of their 40. But at the same time, there are limitations that are simply genetic. If someone is at 30% fast twitch and 70% slow twitch, it's going to be pretty tough for them to be a superstar track athlete in terms of more of the shorter events. So there definitely is a big component there. But at the same time, I don't think anyone should ever let that limit what they're going to be doing in terms of improving their own body and maximizing their genetic potential. This is one of the keys that I talk about a lot. And this is one of the things that got me into to training was trying to find the most effective training modalities to maximize your genetic potential, which really nobody knows what they're genetic potential is until they start training and even when they do start training they still really never find out the the limits of it but optimizing it or maximizing their genetic capabilities that's what it's about yeah no well said joel i did not know about all the details regarding performance but it makes a lot of sense especially with the fast twitch versus slow twitch. And obviously there's those intermediate fibers that can transition. I'm, I'm not up on the newest research because that's not really what I do, but I know they can transition to fast twitch or to slow twitch based on our training. Do you do training based on, I mean, do you do any muscle fiber sort of, I've, I've seen people say, Hey, this is how you figure out whether you're slow twitch dominant or fast twitch dominant. Then based on that, here's how you train. Do you, do you buy into that? Is that something that has any validity? To a degree to me, there are certain things that come down to performance that come down to, uh, fitness and strength training that regardless of who you are, there are certain basic tenets that stay pretty constant from person to person, I would say 70 to 80%. But then yes, there are going to be some some differences in training techniques based on perhaps their fiber type. I'll give you an example just with myself here. When I was in uh, doing my PhD, we did different lab tests in some of my physiology classes and we looked at Twitch time, basically the time it takes for a muscle to fire once it's activated and once it's basically stimulated from an e-stim device, okay? So this is a very interesting uh, test, and I'm a pretty explosive person, but it's because of my training. It's not my genetics, and what they found, everyone thought when we did this test because, granted, I was with a lot of graduate students, so nobody was a, a complete beast. Most of these were <laughs> uh, maybe uh, lab rats or uh, you know maybe scientific nerds, so to speak. But anyways, they got to me, and everyone thought, hey, Joel's going to be really fast twitch. It's time to, to twitch, and muscle activation is going to be very quick. Well, I was actually one of the slowest in the entire group, and that was simply – they 
stimulating my muscles, how long did it take for them to eventually fire? It was one of the slowest, like I said, in the group. And I've had, I've done a few other uh, things in lab settings that would kind of indicate that I am actually a little bit more of a slow twitch athlete, but I've trained more to become an explosive athlete and my muscle fibers, particularly some of the intermediate fibers and even some of the slow twitch fibers have taken on characteristics of fast twitch muscle fibers that when I perform or when I jump or when I run or lift, it looks like I'm fairly explosive and more fast twitch. But when you actually do a lab test on me, I actually show up as still somewhat more of a slow twitch athlete. But that, again, has not deterred me from training a certain way. And had I trained more slow twitch emphasis because, you know, my body is maybe a, a bit more on that end of the spectrum, it would not have maximized my fitness, my performance, my strength, my muscularity. Maybe it would have enhanced muscular endurance, obviously, but that really wasn't what I was going for. And most athletes aren't always going for that. So it's it's very uh, unique, you know, when it comes to muscle fiber adaptations and probably 30, 40% of the muscles we have can kind of be transitioned to a degree, but you can't really take someone that is extremely slow twitch and make them very fast twitch and vice versa. Yeah, important point there. And Joel, I read a study where they took these untrained guys because you said you said that something great earlier, and I think this this backs up your point. Where I, I read this study, it was doing a test to see how people responded to strength training. They got these untrained guys, and, and it turned out that there was extreme responders who just they in, in the short study time. I forget if it was four, six, or eight weeks. But it was it was a pretty short study, but they got results very fast. And then there was the moderate responders, and then there was people who, during the entire study of doing the the weight training program, they just didn't get results at all. And they boiled it down to the satellite cells that they're genetically born with, right? That that comes genetically programmed. Have you read about that? And obviously, the hypertrophy has to do with these satellite cells. Could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so there's different kind of mechanisms in terms of signaling for muscle hypertrophy. So you, you when you talk about kind of your mechanisms of muscle hypertrophy and satellite signaling, oftentimes one of the biggest factors for that satellite signaling and, and triggering that increased protein synthesis response is going to be overload or mechanical tension. That's kind of one of the key ones when a muscle is overload or the body senses that overload. It actually kind of triggers this response and it, it's not even fully understood yet. Obviously, just from the simple standpoint of activating all the available muscle fibers, they know that's definitely one of the the key stimuli for triggering hypertrophy, but there's still different factors that need to be more understood. And then you have things like uh, muscle damage. When the muscle basically gets broken down, there's levels of microtrauma, and then it comes back stronger, and that has to do to a degree with satellite signaling as well. And then even some aspects dealing with metabolic stress and cellular volumization and buildup of, uh, you know, things like hydrogen ions and lactic acid accumulation, all these different factors kind of dictate levels of muscle hypertrophy. But all these studies where you see, you know, certain individuals respond well, certain individuals don't respond well. Unfortunately, when you look at the nature of most strength training studies, they're really not carried out with the level of expertise that they needed to be in terms of basically assign a certain type of training program to the subjects and participants, but they don't really monitor form, technique. They don't do a lot in terms of teaching them proper body mechanics. So you take someone that has poor muscle 
maybe poor, poor genes in terms of building muscle or maximizing muscle hypertrophy in their body. Maybe they're a little bit more slow twitch. Those individuals are going to need much more careful attention when it comes to body mechanics and coaching and training, even if they have already been trained when they get subjects that are, you know, already have say three years of training experience. Unfortunately, most of the times, all of the subjects and participants have really poor body mechanics and the lab rats, and I call them that because they're great at carrying out studies, but they don't have any clue when it comes to actually implementing proper strength training protocols and teaching the participants how to do that. So that's why you get this wide range of variability when it, when it comes to results. You know, the people with great genes, they're going to respond to anything. The people that don't have as solid of, of genes when it comes to building muscle mass, they need more uh, precise training protocols that they're not being given. So yeah, that's kind of yeah. what it comes down to. Yeah, no, that's that's such an important point. And, and I think the big takeaways, if you're listening to this and, and it's a bit sciencey, is that you don't know if you have great genes or not unless you're in there working out and trying things. And it was so funny in this study, I bet you with the guys who knew that they were easy responders or, or extreme responders and they just had to go in and do some exercise and their mechanics didn't have to be that good. They would have been working out a lot longer before that they signed up to that study because it would just would happen so much easier for them. And if you're listening to this and you're like, man, you know, I've been working out for a long time and, and I don't really see the results in my body. Like, like I feel like I should, or like I see in my friends. Well, listen to Joel, start paying more attention to your body mechanics. And I'll tell you, Joel, I feel like I'm probably a low responder to a medium responder. When it comes to strength training, I really had to dial things in. I had to learn periodization. I had to learn better exercise technique. And that's when I really started getting the results, the strength, the muscle, the feeling better. So important. And your eccentric isometrics are just such a great tool. And you mentioned that Guys who are poor responders, they really need more attention to the body mechanics. And also, poor body mechanics can lead to a lot of inflammation. We've covered eccentric isometrics. And if you're listening right now for the first time and you're like, what are eccentric isometrics? Go to my website, legendarylightpodcast.com and type in Joel Seedman or eccentric isometrics. You're going to find a whole entire episode on that, why they're important. And we're not going to cover that ground. But Joel, I'm interested... What else do you think is important for these people who are poor responders or medium responders or people who are inflamed and and they're like, yeah, I go to the gym and I get decent results, but I always feel like my joints ache afterwards or I have trouble moving afterwards. What other techniques other than the eccentric isometrics do you recommend for people like that to maximize their gains? Interesting question. The the topic of... uh inflammation and and kind of how it affects performance and fitness and how training affects inflammation and you know how it's related to body mechanics it's very in-depth and it's something i'm actually currently writing my book right now this is kind of my my big book that i've been working on since i did my phd and there are certain sections dealing with this and (laughs) it's one of those things where i finish writing certain portions of it and my brain is pretty much fried because it's so detailed and so uh, complex And yeah, so really you kind of have, uh, I guess, three factors when it comes to limiting inflammation in the body or decreasing levels of inflammation. And and first off, the reason why inflammation or this, this topic of minimizing inflammation is so important is because the research 
in so many different areas of medicine, health, performance, they're pretty much showing that inflammation is linked to and related to pretty much every known physical disease or malady or sickness or infirmity that we have seen in the human body. So it's not just an isolated thing where, hey, you know, I've got sore joints or my body has inflammation. Oh, well, um, I still feel healthy. If your body is inflamed, you are not healthy. That is plain and simple. So let me talk just a little bit about uh, kind of some nutritional things and, and dietary strategies. But hopefully if we have time, I can kind of circle back to how body mechanics actually affect inflammation and, and what the implications are behind that. So obviously diet is huge. They're doing a lot of studies recently showing that poor diet, a diet that has a lot of sugar, a lot of trans fats, a lot of junk food, a lot of processed foods are going to increase the levels of inflammation throughout the body and they can produce chronic inflammation. Oftentimes it's related to obesity and increased adipose tissue and also decreased ability to handle carbohydrates and, and issues with blood glucose levels, insulin function, all that. And so just making sure that you're eating healthy food, making sure that you're not eating too many carbohydrates, making sure that it's not junk food, making sure that you're getting enough healthy fats in things like fish oil or even fish are incredible for reducing inflammation in the body. Things like curcumin or which is found in turmeric and curcumin are, are kind of the new big breakthrough supplements and nutritional strategies that's been discussed a lot in research recently and those are huge for fighting inflammation. Quercetin, bromelain, CoQ10, antioxidants when you're looking at even things like vitamin C, ginseng, uh, resveratrol. And ironically, all these different supplements and foods that help fight inflammation, they also help to increase testosterone naturally in the body. So there's kind of this dual effect. They're finding that when somebody is inflamed, their hormones are going to be impacted. And by basically decreasing this inflammation, we're optimizing their hormones in terms of testosterone, estrogen. And, and if they are inflamed, you're actually in a, a state of poor endocrine function because inflammation affects everything in the human body. So it's, it's pretty remarkable, but, you know, obviously optimizing what we do with our diet and with our supplements, that is absolutely critical. Yeah, I love how you're focusing on supplements that actually improve our health. I feel like in our industry, too many people focus on what's the whey protein or the pre-workout with like 8,000 milligrams of caffeine that I should take to really make sure I can get through my workout. And, you know, when it comes to supplementation for you, you're, you're bringing up ones that are supposed to improve our health instead of just try to make us look better and thinking more long term. I've got a, a question you talked about, and I would like to get into the, the nutrition supplements a little bit deeper, the ones that you mentioned. You mentioned that in a previous podcast, you talked about how the muscles are the biggest endocrine organ of the human body. Am I saying that right? Was it endocrine or exocrine? That is is exactly correct. Yes. Okay. So endocrine. And there's all these, these things, these cytokines or interleukins, or it's not my, my area of expertise or study, but our muscles go a long way to manage that. And exercise is pro-inflammatory, which I think is an important point. So we really need to also manage the intensity and volume or the amount of exercise that we do as well, right? Yeah, no, it is. It's uh, okay. So if we're talking about, and and you mentioned muscles being, here's what happened. Basically 10 years ago, roughly 
they reclassified muscle tissue instead of being the largest organ of the body. They re- reclassified it as being the largest endocrine organ of the human body, as you mentioned. And as an endocrine organ, it's not healthy, okay? Then your whole body is going to basically be in a state that is uh, sickened and essentially poisoned from not having healthy muscles because, as you mentioned as well, muscles produce these uh, cytokines uh, or the, 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 these proteins and when they're produced in the muscles, they're known as myokines. And these myokines actually are largely responsible for dictating levels of inflammation in the body. And this is there's two different types of inflammation. You mentioned the pro-inflammatory response. Uh, there's also an anti-inflammatory response. But exercise does produce a, an acute or temporary increase in inflammation. So that is a pro-inflammatory response. So if you look at things like interleukin-6, which is a, a very interesting myokine that's being studied greatly. There are certain researchers that are making their whole livelihood out of studying this one myokine. So I, I'm not an expert like these guys are. I've studied it enough to, to know uh, how it impacts some of the different aspects that we're talking about. But if you exercise too much, you exercise improperly, this pro-inflammatory response, it actually ends up staying long-term and it becomes long-term or chronic inflammatory response. And this goes back to chronic inflammation. And chronic inflammation is related to oxidative stress. And oxidative stress is related to pretty much every malady or issue in the human body, as we mentioned, because that is related directly to inflammation. So if we're talking about how does exercise impact our levels of inflammation? Well, as you mentioned, too much exercise or improper training can set off some of these pro-inflammatory myokines, and it can set them off to be this kind of chronic effect. And what can actually happen, you can have elevated levels of myokines and elevated levels of inflammation from faulty body mechanics that are similar to that of individuals who would be classified as a high-risk cardiovascular individual. So it gets pretty crazy. I mean, your body and your muscles really have the capability to almost dictate if your whole system and your whole physiology is healthy. And it's, it's, it's pretty wild. It's pretty, pretty cool. Yeah, no, it's such an important point. And because I know I hear it all the time. I'm one of these people who beat themselves up to the point where, like I said, I looked awesome, right? And people would say that I look great. And that's usually the measure that we use when we're trying to figure out how our health and fitness program is going. Like, well, my shoulder hurts, my knees ache like crazy when I wake up in the morning, but hey, I look in the mirror when I finally limp over to it and I've got low body fat, I see striations in my muscles, but what I hear you saying is it's not enough to look pretty in the mirror. It has to do with these inflammatory responses and managing them and making sure that we not only have good body mechanics and using the proper amount and types of exercise, but also the nutrition and the supplementation as well. Yeah, no, exactly. And you know, the inflammatory response that you're that you're talking about, it can affect everything from digestion to sinus issues to sleep to your ability to absorb carbohydrates, insulin function, all kinds of things. So this isn't something that is just limited to you know a few aspects of the human body. We're talking about how inflammation can impact everything and how muscles really are the key factor when it comes to determining uh, inflammation as well as diet and supplements, as you mentioned. But this is very common, and I've seen this 
with athletes and with the clients that I've worked with, they come in, they look amazing. I just had a new client that I started working with several months ago, came to me, looks awesome, looks like a, almost like a pro bodybuilder, but he was telling me all the physical issues he's been having and it just ran an entire list. It was almost like what you would expect to see on a 75 or 80 year old individual. And this guy was in his late twenties or early thirties and we were able to kind of look and see what was going on. And you looked at his body mechanics and they were really amiss, had a lot of different types of dysfunctions, asymmetries, different issues that he was dealing with, with the muscle activation deficits. And as soon as we started improving his body mechanics, he experienced much less inflammation and his digestion improved, his sleep patterns improved, he started feeling better, and as a result, he actually started gaining more muscle, even though we had to reduce the training loads he was using because we had to improve his body mechanics. So, you know, he was a little bit worried at first, hey, you know, is this going to impact my my physique? And I said, no, actually, you know, this is actually going to help in the long run. And it kind of surprised both of us that he ended up gaining more muscle, even though we had to take his weight way down. But simply because his body was healthy, his whole physiology was healthy because we were teaching him how to use his muscles correctly and his muscles were in a state of optimal functioning or getting better at functioning. It impacted his whole body. Yeah, that's such a great story because, and I hope if you're listening right now, you're starting to understand the bigger picture in that the dose of exercise and the result of the exercise program that you're doing is super important. And if you're looking at getting in better shape, if you're talking about losing body fat or building muscle, it really has to do with this idea like you need to improve your health. And if you're jacked up and you have sleep trouble because you're so inflamed, if you have digestive issues because you're so jacked up, then that's a problem and it's stopping you from looking and feeling better. I think that's a hard one for a lot of people, Joel, because all these people that I know, at least, they got this push through mentality, which is admirable from a a mental strength component, but it's like you're destroying yourself. You're using your mental fortitude to destroy your body and to decrease the quality of your life. So, so yeah, no, let's. It's, it's very true. And, and, you know, this is actually, I uh, can't remember if I mentioned this to you recently, but I had a interview just a few days ago with men's fitness on a topic of dealt with rhabdomyolysis or extreme muscle soreness. And this is something that we're seeing more in the news, but you can have such extreme muscle soreness that it can actually give you such heightened levels of inflammation in the body that it almost makes you sickly similar to what we were just talking about here. And it can affect everything from endocrine function to digestion to all these different biochemicals in the body, the overall biochemistry, the way everything is working together with the crosstalk between the organs, different signaling between different parts of the body. And it's pretty crazy, but doing too much strength training can actually cause your body to become unhealthy and doing improper strength training can do the same thing. And it can actually atrophy your muscles if you're not careful. So this is something that is seen more in the research that if an individual gets too sore, either again from doing improper strength training or too much strength training, their muscles will atrophy because they can't recover from the degree of muscle damage that was induced from that training. 
Oh, yeah, that's such a good one. I hope that's a breakthrough aha moment for a lot of people listening who are looking to be healthier and get better results. One thing I want to ask you about, too, one thing I brought up to you in, in our interview, and I didn't ask you more about it because I was like, well, that, I need to bring that up in another interview. But I brought up, we were discussing eccentric isometrics, which is just a fascinating, amazing technique that you've really pushed out to uh, the mainstream. And I asked you, well, hey, there's research showing that eccentric training, focusing on that lowering portion or that loading portion of the exercise where you're loading your muscles under stretch can actually make you insulin resistant. And that's when I believe you brought up the muscles being the biggest endocrine organ of the the human body. So can you talk a little bit more about how we can avoid things like that? What do we need to do? I'm trying to think practical right now, Joel, especially for the people listening. And right away, I think, okay, if you're doing a workout or doing an exercise that is causing you joint pain that lasts after your workout is done, you did something wrong. Exactly. Yeah. Well, you got two types of inflammation technically you can talk about in terms of uh, poor or negative inflammation. You got the joint inflammation and you got extreme muscle inflammation, neither of which are desirable. And as you said, one of the key determinants is, A, is it making your joint sore? If it's making your joint sore, then you're doing something wrong. I've rarely run into scenarios where joint soreness is not related to poor body mechanics. You oftentimes hear people say, hey, I can't squat or I can't do this because I have a bad this or a bad back or bad knees or I can't do this exercise because it triggers this and then you teach them how to do the movement properly and even though they may have some pretty extreme inflammation around that joint or maybe even a a replaced joint in that specific area they're able to actually do the exercise well if they do it with very precise technique and that's again kind of goes back to eccentric isometrics how do you train someone to do the optimal technique or apply the optimal body mechanics for any particular movement And that's why eccentric isometrics can be so valuable because it basically teaches individuals how to minimize tension and stress to the joints and it it reinforces the idea of using the muscles as your shock absorbers. And this kind of goes back as well to uh, inflammation of the muscles. If the muscles are overly lengthened or they're overly shortened, they're either going to uh, tear too much if they're overly lengthened or they won't be compliant enough if they're overly stiff and they'll have too much tearing and microtrauma again. And both of these scenarios can create excessive levels of muscle soreness. And muscle soreness, most people don't realize this, it is inflammation. So if there's too much of it, your whole body is going to be inflamed. So if you walk away from a workout, your whole body is feeling destroyed. There are certain tests that can be done. It's called a C-reactive protein test. And there's been research studies showing that when people – get very sore from intense strength training, again, their levels of uh, C-reactive protein are on par with that of people who are at high-risk cardiovascular disease. So that is not something that is healthy or optimal or ideal when it comes to even maximizing strength and hypertrophy because your whole body is basically in a sickly condition. Ooh, not good. And one of the things that it brings up for me personally and for a lot of the people that I work with, because most of the people that I work with have some medical issue or some joint injury. I mean, I finally have someone, this 66-year-old that I just started training, he's a 66-year-old CEO of uh, this this big company. He's about to retire and he's got no injuries, but everybody else, they, they've got injuries. And when you have an injury, it's much more likely, at least for the people that I train and for myself, 
that it's easy to pass that threshold where the strength training makes you inflamed afterward. I know, so eccentric isometrics is a powerful way of managing the stress that you put on your muscles and making sure that you're not overdoing it in the shortened or lengthened phase. Another thing that you talk about is excessive range of motion. And everybody, or a lot of people at least, are just so dead set in in fitness on like ass to grass squats. Like the deeper, the better. Get a really deep stretch when you do uh, whatever exercise that you're doing. And something that you teach is really control the range of motion and look for optimal positionings of your body so that you're staying in a strong position and not putting yourself in this this excessively lengthened position that will feel harder to your muscles, but will end up actually leading to this inflammation and and possibly subpar results. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, it's a great point, great topic. And like you said, it's one that I've been really kind of emphasizing for quite some time because I've seen this really be one of the biggest mistakes that's been promoted by the fitness and strength training industry the last uh, really last several decades and very few people are discussing this and bringing it up but we never want maximal range of motion or maximal mobility we always want optimal range of motion or natural range of motion and optimal mobility if we have too much mobility or too much range of motion we're sacrificing stability and we're sacrificing optimal joint mechanics and osteokinematics and body positioning and again that can lead to extreme stress on the joints it can lead to uh, excessive microtrauma and muscle damage to the muscle, which again, as we just talked about, we don't want extreme muscle damage. So one of the things that you can actually see in the research is movements that use an excessive or overly large range of motion, they do produce more muscle soreness. And perhaps this is why many uh, trainers and, and athletes have been mistaken over the last several decades because they do a workout and they use a very large range of motion, say something like ass to grass squats, uh, or extreme chest stretches with flies, and they, they see that, wow, I got really sore. This must be a great stimulus to my muscles, and in fact, it's not. So whenever we perform a movement, it shouldn't create that almost destructive level of muscle damage or, or inflammation. We always want optimal body mechanics because that's how we produce force optimally. That's how we absorb force optimally, and as soon as we start breaching our body's natural barrier when it comes to uh, optimal range of motion. We're not just teaching that in the weight room. We're actually starting to change how we move when it comes to everyday life. We're teaching or reteaching our body how to walk, how to sprint, how to pick things up. And if we're reinforcing this idea of using excessive range of motion when we're training, it trickles and transfers to our other movement patterns. And this is why I see so much, with, especially with these combine guys and NFL guys that I get to work with, so many times these guys have hamstring strains and hamstring pulls and sciatic issues, and almost every single time it's because they have been doing too much stretching of their hamstrings and trying to go for this massive range of motion when they do their RDLs and hip hinge motions. And you know they are always always asking me, hey, what type of stretches should I be doing? I say, hey, you don't need to do any more stretches. We need to teach you how to control your range of motion and stop having so much mobility. And sure thing, after literally just several sessions, they start going huge improvements in their hamstrings and they stop pulling them. So this is, and it's indicative of other muscles too. So do you not use stretching at all or do you use it in specific circumstances, but not in general? What can you tell us about that? 
I use it very rarely. And if I do use it, it's because it's a quick fix for maybe an athlete that I don't have the time or the resources to spend more time with to, to kind of correct the long term or, or more root cause of the issue. I always tell my athletes that they want to stretch, do eccentric isometrics because it provides and teaches the body the optimal levels of stretching of the muscle. So that's, that's you know, if, again, if they need increased mobility, we do it through eccentric isometrics. If they need less mobility, we do it through eccentric isometrics because it's teaching them to stop the motion before they get into that extreme range of motion. If they have tight glutes, tight hamstrings, hey, we're going to do a hip hinge eccentric isometric. Tight hip flexors, guess what? We're going to do a Bulgarian squat or a split squat or lunge eccentric isometric is the same thing with all the other muscle groups because if you overly lengthen one muscle you're overly tightening another muscle and vice versa so if you overly lengthen a muscle on one side of the body the other side is going to be overly shortened and then this can produce hypertonicity or spasticity in the muscles uh, on certain sides of the body and this can actually i don't want to get too detailed here but this can actually be traced back to those levels of inflammation and myokines in the body and then the muscles actually start to produce these toxins because they're overly inflamed and then that has this negative endocrine impact on the entire body so again we want optimal range of motion you know i always tell people roughly 90 degree parallel perpendicular motions if we start going excessively deeper than that we're reinforcing dysfunctional mechanics so funny i i remember when your squat article was shared and how people were for me i'm i'm always interested when someone brings up something that's contradictory to what i've been doing or what i believe and i i love to learn i love to challenge myself and i like to evolve because that's you know what i believe everybody should do right but just seeing how people were like oh well this is crap and you know you're just talking about the difference between high bar and low bar squats only you're talking about the depth and it it just totally i think went over people's heads but also people don't want to hear that man you know yeah. they don't want to hear that this deep squat that they're so proud of doing is probably messing them up Joel yeah. I, I have something that might be kind of interesting for you to hear so i was just recently injured and it, it was a terrible injury. I've made a full recovery, but I had sciatic symptoms. I couldn't walk for, for the better part of two months. I was limping and, you know, had to go to the doctor, all this stuff. Made a full recovery. I'm doing well now. But I was following Gymnastic Bodies program. Are you familiar with that in Christopher Summer? I have heard of it. I haven't researched it or investigated it very in depth, but I, I have heard of it. So he's a former U.S. national gymnastics coach, and he's probably really conservative as far as gymnastic coaches go because, you know, there's a lot of guys who are just like, hey, we're going to compete in this sport, and if it destroys you, well, you know, tough shit because it's about winning and it's about, you know, giving your life over to the sport. And he he doesn't have that approach. He, he talks about you know, making sure you take deload weeks and making sure you do maintain mobility. But he has some very interesting thoughts on what a human body should be able to do as far as mobility is concerned. And he uses a lot of loaded stretching and things like that and thinks that you should be able to extend your shoulders to parallel. You should be able to extend, yeah, go into shoulder extension until your arms reach 
you know, 90 degrees or so, and you should be able to get your arms in a straight line over your head. I mean, obviously, I know you said you haven't researched it, but when people say that and people are doing it, but they're getting good results, I don't hear a lot of people complaining about injuries. Do you feel like they're just setting them up or what what are your thoughts on that type of training, realizing that it is in the context of doing like a muscle up or doing, you know, some of these gymnastic moves that do require quite a bit of mobility and to pull off? Yeah, it's a good question. So one of the things that when you talk about extreme positions or extreme range of motion, I am of the mindset that everyone should be able to get into these, or not everyone, but most people should be able to get into these pretty extreme range of motions. They And again, I want to emphasize the words, they should be able to. That doesn't mean that they should be doing it frequently because it's not therapeutic, it's actually contra-therapeutic. But if your muscles are healthy, if your joints are healthy from training them properly, guess what? You're not going to have all this inflammation around the joint or the muscle and your ability to actually be able to produce this huge range of motion will actually be much better than someone who's been practicing all these extreme positions and who has extreme inflammation because they've been overstretching their muscles and their tendons and ligaments. So it's, it's ironic. I've seen this a lot with some athletes and even with my own clients, even myself, the less I actually train the astagrass squat position in myself with some of my athletes and the more we teach proper squat mechanics, the easier they can actually get into an astagrass squat position when they have to because they're not inflamed and their body is healthy so they can get into these extreme positions when needed. But when you actually have them train extreme range of motion in astagrass squats frequently, they're so inflamed, they're so tight, they actually need 10 to 15 minutes of corrective exercises and warming up and foam rolling before they can even get even close to an astagrass squat without having pain. So again, it's all about what should you be able to do if you were kind of tested and what should you be doing on a consistent basis based on what is therapeutic and contra-therapeutic. That's a very important distinction and, and a great answer. Yeah, I I don't want to talk too much about it because I'm just kind of throwing it at you and I want to get on to some of the other things. But no, that's a great answer. And I'd love to maybe discuss that perhaps on another podcast when we have more time to get into it. I, I would love to talk a little bit more if you're up for it. I'd love to talk a little bit more about nutrition and supplementation and mm-hmm. how we can use nutrition to minimize inflammation. You you gave a great breakdown of what you should be doing. You should you should be eating protein. You shouldn't overdo carbs. You should make sure you get in the fats. You mentioned fish oil as a supplement. And when we're talking about inflammation, what are some specifics that maybe everybody can do aside from the ones that you already mentioned? Is, is Should we be balancing our fat? Should we have a saturated monounsaturated and polyunsaturated omega-3s and omega-6s? Should we balance those? I mean, do you have some specifics like that based on what you do and what you know and what you do with yourself and your clients? Yeah, so you're touching on a a topic right there with the whole fat intake and healthy fats. And this is something that is crucial that most people – either don't tune into or they don't value as they should. The the topic of getting enough healthy fats in the diet is perhaps one of the most important nutritional components you can look at. And a lot of athletes, a lot of even just general populations, even if they are getting enough technical fat, you know, in terms of grams of fat or quantity of fat in their diet, oftentimes they're not getting the ideal types of fat. 
or if they've been on some type of maybe a calorically restricted diet or following some other type of uh, nutritional protocols pretty strictly, oftentimes they're not eating enough healthy fats and those fats are absolutely critical for endocrine function, hormones, testosterone, joint health, overall performance, and even insulin control, and, and even when it comes to satisfying hunger levels in the body. So pretty much what I like to tell a lot of my athletes, if it's someone in its natural form, and there, there are exceptions to that, then those are the type of fats you want to be eating. Just to throw out a few out there, fish or fish oil, like we previously mentioned, nuts and seeds, nuts, uh, pretty much all nuts are awesome for you, with the exception of peanuts. Peanuts do have some phytoestrogens in them, and they also can cause some mild to severe food allergies that even if you don't realize you are somewhat allergic to it, they can keep you from being able to digest or break down some of the other proteins you're taking in. So it can basically decrease the bioavailability of other nutrients. So you got to be careful that seeds, pumpkin seeds, chia seeds, hemp seeds, sesame seeds, all those are awesome. They're natural testosterone boosters. Also great for fighting inflammation, excellent for enhancing body composition. Again, it will fill you up having a serving of these healthy fats. It helps to satisfy those hunger levels in the body, helps control insulin and uh, blood glucose levels. Olive oil, avocados, coconut, especially there's a lot of research now on medium chain triglycerides being awesome for not just only body composition, but for health, for heart health, inflammation. So, you know, you're starting to see medium chain triglycerides in supplements now, even a lot of bodybuilding supplements because they're seeing the value that they have. But uh, all those healthy fats, they're great for you. And again, I don't tell people, you know, eat them as much as they want because they are high calories and you can overdo it. Um, but making sure you get in at least a moderate amount of those healthy fats is, is critical, uh, again, for performance and for health. And what is your take on nutrition? You mentioned, you know, I, I think of you as a very like practical, but also, you know, science-based, research-based type of guy. You mentioned something eating whole foods and in their natural form. Do you take a paleo approach? Do you do low carb? I, I mean, how would you define your, your nutritional approach? Yeah, it's a little bit of a hybrid approach. It's kind of my own, what I've come away with after, you know, all these years of, of looking at the different types of research and experimenting with it, using it on different clients and, and kind of seeing what's worked and what hasn't. I think uh, a cross between a, a paleo, it's definitely not a low carb. It's a paleo with less restrictions. And uh, I don't like to limit or minimize carbohydrates. For me, it's more about controlling when they're eating certain carbohydrates, the type of carbohydrates they're eating, and, and again, maximizing the timing and the amount during certain times of the day because if they've been in a physically active state, if they've just done a lot of strength training or they're going to be doing a lot of strength training, their insulin sensitivity in their muscles is going to be through the roof because those GLUT4 receptors, those little sponges or sponge-like receptors on the muscles are going to be upregulated. So at that time, that's when they want to get those carbohydrates in. And even if it is, you know, maybe not the healthiest carbohydrates, even if it is something that's, you know, more refined, a little bit more sugar, that's okay because your muscles will actually kind of take those in because it'll produce a stronger insulin spike, which again, if we have been active, then having those type of carbohydrates pretty close to that time period is in fact ideal. But for most other times of the day, carbohydrates that don't promote a big insulin response that are in their natural form, Obviously, vegetables, certain types of fruit, but to you know, also in moderation with fruit, oats, 
yams, sweet potatoes, quinoa, different types of rice, and uh, you know even a few types of healthy breads. But there's not too many breads out there that I'm a fan of. Ezekiel Is bread that because the gluten or or for some other reason. If you look at most breads, even the ones that say they're, you know, whole wheat and, you know, they're made with a lot of fiber in them. If you actually look at the ingredients and kind of how they were produced, it's not too much different than white bread in terms of how our bodies process them because they, they've been very processed. If you think about most breads, they've been processed. They've gone through that manufacturing procedures and uh, so they're not really in their natural form. You have a few breads out there, specifically ones that use sprouted grains and are organic usually and usually if you look at the number of carbohydrates to fiber i think it's usually about uh, a four to one or five to one ratio so if there's 15 grams of carbs per slice it's about three or four grams of fiber and then you know it's a pretty good bread but uh it can relate back to the gluten issue but honestly the gluten issue to me is overblown and most people are not gluten intolerant they just have poor dietary habits and then they switch over to a gluten diet and they eliminate a lot of junk food in their diet inevitably and it you know they obviously feel better. Yeah, and I, I'm in the same boat. I don't avoid gluten, but I do try to eat the best quality food I can afford, I can find and yeah, most people they're they're not great at discerning between like what was the action that I took that actually gave me the results. I went on this gluten-free diet, but maybe it was that I switched that I stopped eating all the candy and the other things and you know, it just it restricted those terrible foods. Yeah, so no it's great to hear your approach and and that's what I was expecting was this this thoughtful, non-extreme sort of approach to to nutrition. That's good to hear. And Joel, can we dive into supplements a little bit? Do you, do you have yeah. some time? Yeah, definitely. Okay, cool. So you mentioned some supplements. You mentioned, you, you said curcumin instead of curcumin, which was interesting. Curcumin, curcumin. I had a, prof- I had a few professors that they went back and forth in this. There was actually a, a a professor at UGA, he was he was a big researcher on this, and I can't remember which way he pronounced it, but we had a discussion about this one day, and so I've heard both curcumin, curcumin, so <laughs> I guess it's it maybe up for a little bit of translation, or maybe I'm pronouncing it wrong. <laughs> yeah, no, just curious, because uh, I, I haven't heard someone, I've heard it a lot, but I've, that's the first time I've heard it said that way. So I would just say it the way I've been saying it, but curcumin, you mentioned resveratrol. uh, I forget some of the other things that you mentioned, but they're all geared towards improving inflammation. And also you mentioned that they can help with endocrine function, specifically improve your testosterone levels. I've got a question though. If somebody is really jacked up and they take these supplements and they do get rid of the pain, maybe they feel less inflammation, less joint soreness. They can get away with a little bit harder exercise. The question is, is that a good thing that they're able to get away with more exercise? Does it mean that their biochemistry has been changed? The inflammatory response has been sort of mitigated so that they can get away with more? And and if they're not experiencing joint soreness or anything like that, it's fine what they're doing? Or is it similar to like an ibuprofen, a COX-2 inhibitor, or COX-1 inhibitor, where it's kind of masking the symptoms and, and you're still doing damage? Yeah, if you're talking about like anti-inflammatories, generally speaking, uh, you know, that they're not optimal for really any situation. But if you're looking at some of these supplements, 
like you just mentioned, they can potentially mask symptoms. They can, and you know, it's not that people shouldn't take them, but you know, they need to find out first and foremost, what is the cause of my inflammation? They need to look at two things. As we discussed, they need to look at their body mechanics. They need to look at their exercise routine and they need to look at their diet. And then they need to, again, look at the supplement component and try and do what they can on that end. But if they haven't addressed dietary habits and they haven't addressed their, their training protocols, then the supplement, you know, it's, it's something they can do, but it's definitely kind of the final piece of the puzzle that needs to be looked at after they've, they've looked at the other two that we just mentioned, because it kind of can be essentially putting a bandaid on a larger wound and just treating the symptoms rather than the root cause of it. Because obviously the inflammation is coming from somewhere so we want to find out what's causing that. And then maybe there's certain things that we can't change because of, you know, environmental factors, for example. And this is one reason why researchers are saying levels of inflammation have never been so high. Yes, it's related to diet, but there's certain, you know, pollutants in the air, certain things of our, our lifestyle factors. You know, we don't even understand all of them, whether it's from plastic bottles or things that are in the air and in the environment and whatnot. But, you know, definitely those things that I mentioned Quercetin is another good one. Green tea extract is, is really good. Alpha lipoic acid, which is a really cool and unique one because it can actually help a lot with insulin function and driving nutrients and partitioning them into the actual muscle fibers, which oddly enough helps in or uh, inflammation quite a bit as well. So yeah, you got to look at kind of all the pieces of the puzzle and not just treat the symptoms. And can you talk about some of the dosages that you recommend there for yeah, each supplement? The dosages, boy, those are going to vary a lot from person to person. Um, fish oil is one that if we're looking at, at dosing, you're seeing here, – here's the deal with the dosing. Pretty much you have this huge range on all these supplements where it can help a little bit if they take a low dose. So if you look at something like fish oil, you can take two grams of fish oil per day and it is going to help with cardiovascular health and cardiovascular function and some other uh, health benefits. But if we're talking about changes to physique and changes to uh, even potentially something like some testosterone benefits from fish oil, which a lot of people don't realize, you actually can get a slight testosterone benefit from fish oil. You can go up to as high as 10 to 15 grams per day. So these the doses are going to vary uh, quite a bit. Unfortunately, there's a lot of research with all these supplements and they're, they're still doing more and more investigation because they don't obviously don't want to overdose individuals and that can lead to some issues if, if you look at things like uh, glutamine or even creatine or branch chain amino acids and you go too high on, on some of these and even alpha lipoic acid it can actually compromise digestion and you can start to have some uh, gastrointestinal issues which again that can actually lead to inflammation and that can Im impair the ability to maximize your hypertrophy and strength so it's kind of this this fine balance so that, that's the unfortunate thing about all these supplements. There's no current standards for dosing and the amount because it's just something that uh, research hasn't been that precise on, unfortunately, and we need more information on that. So, how, how would you recommend someone goes about experimenting with some of these and trying to get the right dose? Right off the bat, I hear don't try to... I forget what they call it, but like uh, super dose, the, or the supplements that you're taking or, you know, make sure that you start out with a little bit and maybe up it from there. Is, is that what you would recommend or? Yeah, no, definitely. Especially because like I mentioned, you can actually see uh, 
pretty quickly whether or not somebody starts to have a poor response to a certain supplement. And it's not uncommon if you take too much of a product. It can have, like I just mentioned, a, a negative digestive impact. Starting off with a small dose, even if it's just for a few days and kind of building up. And this is something that I, I recommend for a lot of people when they're taking supplements, things like beta alanine. You know, if you look at beta alanine, a lot of people, they can't handle too much of it. It can make them feel almost tingly. like, yeah, tingly and like they've got uh, fleas or something in their body and they start itching all over the place and they start to get flush and it can actually freak them out a little bit. And there's a few cases of people going to the hospital because they didn't know what was going on. But uh, and again, that can, and, it, and it can also alter uh, and, and mess with the uh, digestion and stomach function as well. So all these supplements, you know, that's really for any supplement, always want to start off on kind of the lower recommended dosage. And really, I think pretty much every supplement now, you are seeing recommended dosage in, in broad ranges if you just look up the research. And unfortunately, it, it does kind of span a pretty uh, large range, but start off always on the lower dosage and usually start off with one or at most two supplements at a time because you don't know what's going to be working or what isn't working. So if something all of a sudden starts to give you some allergic reaction and you're taking 10 new products, you have no idea what it is. So always starting off with one or two supplements and one or two unique products and then you can you know, always go in and add more, more things and it's actually ideal even from a, a performance standpoint because if you throw too much of the body, you can have issues in terms of uh, competition for uh, nutrient absorption and, and some other factors. So, Yeah. Um, what do you think about multivitamins? Interesting question. It's something that I don't disagree with people taking it. I sometimes advocate, especially if I know it's an athlete who is not eating a healthy diet and a, and a well-rounded diet. And so I'll say, hey, you know what? You got to get a multivitamin, take it once or twice a day. But for someone who I have more control over their diet, if they're eating a good amount of vegetables, a good amount of fruits, healthy fats, and they're, they're getting a broad spectrum of nutrients in their diet, probably not necessary. The one thing that I do recommend to a lot of my clients and athletes is to use some form of a, a powdered greens. Or I don't know if you're familiar with that. Sure. Um, but that's kind of the new and the popular. new multivitamin, huh? It's the new multivitamin. It is because it's it's not these vitamins and minerals that have been chemically derived from uh, you know in laboratory settings, but instead it's it's vitamins and minerals and nutrients in their natural form. So you not only have better bioavailability, but it's just more effective. And uh, it just has a better impact on your body. And, and some of those other vitamins, there's some research to show that there is some potential harm and danger by taking too many. Whereas if you're taking something like powdered greens, it's basically condensed food and condensed vegetables. So there's really not much harm in that. Yeah, great point. And I want to just throw out there that whole food vitamins aren't actually derived from whole foods. They put whole foods in the vitamins. This is something I, I learned kind of recently but I was reading this breakdown on what it would take to get, you know, the vitamin B or vitamin A or whatever vitamin it is from a whole food, what it would take to, it, it just, you couldn't do it. So what they do is put a bunch of these other whole food ingredients in there and call it a whole food vitamin. And it is easier on your stomach, which is why I stopped taking my multivitamin like a bunch of years ago, my twin lab multi, because if I took it and didn't eat enough food, I was going to throw, I threw it up. Every single time. It was just brutal. Uh, yeah. Whole food vitamins, I tolerated better. But then I found out that they still use the chemically derived or 
chemically manufactured vitamins, synthesized vitamins. They just put some other things in there and they're able to call it a whole food vitamin. So greens is the new multivitamin. I love it. Yeah. What about pre-workout, intra-workout or post-workout nutrition? You have any yeah, thoughts pre- on those or for hypertrophy for your general person, not a pro NFL player, but someone looking to build some muscle and not to put on too much fat in the process? Yeah, definitely. I mean, you kind of have some of your, I guess, your, your big or key players in there. Obviously, creatine is a big one. There's so many forms of creatine now. And just to briefly talk about that, you got things. Uh, the more simple and basic version, which is creatine monohydrate, then you have creatine HCL or creatine hydrochloride. You have the ethyl ester version. You have creatine nitrate, creatine chelate. And most of the research that has been done on creatine involved creatine monohydrate or micronized creatine monohydrate. A few studies looked at some other versions like the hydrochloride version or the ethyl ester ones that they say you need smaller doses or you don't need as, as large of doses and you don't need to do the loading phase to get the same response, but kind of to play it safe, the creatine monohydrate or micronized version is the one that has been studied the most. But the one thing with creatine that I will say is that if creatine monohydrate does work for the individual, that usually is the most potent form of creatine for that person. However, you have a small percentage, and it's not that small, we're talking 10 to 20% of the population that are non-responders when it comes to creatine, And they will not respond to creatine monohydrate. And oftentimes in those cases, they will respond to some of the other forms of creatine, which is kind of unique. So, you know, creatine hydrochloride, I like to tell people it kind of works for everyone, but sometimes it doesn't work as potent as creatine monohydrate would for uh, certain individuals that respond really well to creatine. So that's something to kind of keep in mind when it comes to to creatine. If we're talking, uh, you know, pre-workout, obviously something that's got uh, some branch chains, especially leucine, because that's kind of the the key one that triggers that mTOR pathway, which is directly responsible for protein synthesis and minimizing protein and muscle uh, catabolism and and breakdown. And it's very anabolic. So making sure they get a good amount of branch chains in that pre-workout. Beta alanine, as we talked about, kind of unique one it basically raises those levels of carnosine in the muscles and it pretty much directly helps to to buffer those uh, hydrogen ions and lactic acid accumulation that you get when you're you know you're doing a a long or extended set so it basically delays the the time to fatigue you got the nitric oxide boosters and ones that help with blood flow and nutrient transport like your arginines arginine alpha ketoglutarate citrulline malate you know all those which are great for basically helping with that uh, cellular volumization. And, and, you know, quite frankly, it goes back uh, to what Arnold used to say with the muscle pump, uh, you know, the good pump, there's nothing like it for, or, you know, the great feeling. And, and it does actually help with the hypertrophy response. And then, you know, you have things like betaine, which is one that's sometimes overlooked, but it's actually very important. It improves that cellular volumization. Again, it can actually improve protein synthesis and then you have things that are even more underrated like hmb i'm not sure if you're familiar with that one but it's basically a more potent version and metabolite of leucine which as we know leucine is kind of that key player when it comes to to, uh triggering protein synthesis and whatnot and and so you know you got a lot of those pre-workout ones and they often have times have caffeine and that's another interesting topic. I don't know if you want to get into that, but uh not today. I'm not a big fan of stimulant based 
chemicals before you your your workout. I know there's a ton of research saying that it's effective. You know, taking 500 milligrams of caffeine. If I did that, I would be in the ER asking yeah, them I, for like some exactly. beta blockers or some you know <laughs> some, something to bring down my heart rate. So I am not a fan of that. So I don't recommend it. I don't even mess around. And man, I, I know some people respond to caffeine very well. And there was a guy in the gym the other day who was drinking. Oh, I forget what it is. Uh, like, I forget what it was, but it had 300 milligrams of caffeine in it. And he was just like, I think it was, he was just like bouncing off the walls, you know? And I, I would be in the hospital with that, man, th- having a yeah. panic attack. I yeah. feel like my heart rate goes, uh, jacks up. My, I feel like my blood pressure, I feel like I'm about to have a heart attack. Is that dangerous? I mean, people do have heart attacks or, or go into cardiac arrest from, from that if they're too sensitive, right? That's one thing I tell them, you know, some of my athletes that I work with, they, you know, some of these guys love caffeine and they, they're used to it. But I tell them, you know, first off, you need to take a break from using caffeine if you are going to use it because you can become desensitized to it. And even if it does continue to work, it can actually start to mess with your autonomic nervous system in terms of uh, kind of being overly sympathetic dominant. You're in this constant state of uh kind of arousal and then jacked up heart rate, as you mentioned, and that's not ideal. You don't want your adrenaline to be constantly in overdrive like that. And then when your uh, sympathetic nervous system is staying in overdrive, that can really alter a lot of aspects of physiology that you do not want to start messing with. And it, it can actually increase cortisol, oddly enough, which can have a detrimental impact on body composition. So it's, it's I've actually seen this with clients sometimes that taking too much caffeine and they actually can't lose some of their body fat, especially in their lower stomach because their cortisol levels are elevated through the roof because they're always in this state of being so much in overdrive from using so much caffeine. We take the the caffeine down and they actually start losing body fat. That is interesting because usually caffeine is like, well, it helps uh, release body fat and get it into the bloodstream for, for burning but it also increases cortisol. And you're saying you've had situations where people were taking so much or perhaps they were sensitive to the doses that they were taking. They, were, they had a hard time losing the body fat. And you're specifically talking about supplementing caffeine or taking like those drinks. You're not talking about drinking a couple cups of coffee, right? Yeah, no, it- there needs to be a little more investigation about this, but I'm a little skeptical of what some of these companies put in their uh, supplements because caffeine is strong. There's no doubt, you know, you drink coffee or, or even certain types of uh, strongly brewed teas and you will, you know, get a, a boost of energy. But some of these products are causing such a, a spike in energy and, and uh, adrenaline that it's almost unnatural. And I almost question what they're actually putting in. Obviously, there's some other things they put in there like taurine and some other forms of caffeine that they, they mix together. But the fact that it's causing that big of a response or that strong of a response, it makes me question what else they're putting in there because that's not quite normal. Yeah, I agree, man. You got to be so careful. It's not right. Reg- I love supplements, but they're not regulated the same way drugs are, even though there's huge issues with drugs too for another discussion. But yeah, I would stay away from that, especially when people are expecting to feel like some some rush. 
I, I just don't trust supplement companies and messing around with that. It just, I, I'm not a fan, but I would like to just briefly ask you about some of the other things that you mentioned. You mentioned beta alanine, branched chain amino acids, especially leucine, because it's the most important branched chain amino acid for stimulating that mTOR pathway. So we turn on the light for protein synthesis. You mentioned HMB2. You know, I read some comparisons with leucine, taking leucine versus taking HMB, but you still mention HMB as as something that, or are you impressed with the research on HMB? I am. It is a little bit, let's put it like this. It It is somewhat mixed in terms of whether or not it's more beneficial and more effective than leucine, but most of the studies that look at whether or not HMB worked, period, and they didn't actually compare it to, to leucine or other types of supplements, it usually almost always shows some type of positive effect. When you compare it to other products, specifically you know, leucine or other types of branched chain amino acid products, sometimes it is a little bit mixed. I've seen both where HMB is more effective, and I've seen others where it's not as effective or similarly as effective as leucine. So there is a little bit of a, a mix in there. And then you have even some of your newer forms of HMB, like free form HMB that was studied at, uh, I think it was Florida University. And you have a few companies starting to put those out that are saying it's even more effective than the typical HMB, which is supposedly more effective than leucine. So the supplement industry, it's, it's an interesting one. It, it, it tends to be a, a bit gimmicky sometimes, and it's tough to know what's true and what isn't. I will sometimes have athletes, after, you know, just try different things as long as it's safe and, and you know it's healthy and you know it's not something that's going to set off a drug test obviously and if they're trying to do everything they can to maximize their results and we may say hey let's try HMB it may work it may not let's try a month of it you know worst case scenario you may be lost uh, 20 30 bucks but for these pro athletes or even some of these other uh, collegiate athletes if they're getting ready to go to the uh, NFL and, and they have an, an agent you know it's not a big deal throwing away a little bit of money to see if something like that does work so um, but yeah no HMB is, is a is a unique one that's got some mixed literature around it interesting something that you didn't say about pre-workouts is carbohydrates and protein. I know there's this this big debate like about whether you should have whey, which is fast acting, or casein, which is slower acting. And then you get into the carbohydrates where, you know, a lot of people use dextrose, but you know, then they were talking about amylopectin or waxy maize. And then I've read some things on highly branched chain cyclodextrins and yeah. that being the next step up from waxy maize. Do you use that stuff? Are you a big fan of it? Or Yeah, I'm not going to lie. I keep it pretty simple. I usually recommend dextrose. That's the one that's been tried and true for such a long time. And some of these other ones, granted, they may be slightly more anabolic. There's not nearly as much research on them. And, you know, dextrose is the one that has been tried and true over, you know, numerous years, numerous studies on it. It's it's kind of your gold standard. And, and granted, I'm not saying some of these other products don't work as well, but they tend to be much more expensive and they have not been researched nearly as heavily. So, you know, I, I usually recommend something like dextrose and sometimes waxy maize too. Uh, that's, that's also a good one. You get a pretty good insulin spike from that and it's very anabolic. 
But some of these other ones, it's, you know, there's just so little research and there's still more investigation that needs to be done. And oftentimes the price is four or five times higher. Dextrose is so cheap now, you know, it's, it's just so easy to get, you know, 30, 40, 50 grams after you finish a workout down it with, you know, your protein and maybe some other branching amino acids. And, you know, you're setting yourself up for a pretty anabolic environment and then, you know, growth. So. I hear you, man. Keep things simple. Stick with tried and true. Maybe experiment. Yeah, the highly branched cyclodextrins, it's like, what the hell did you guys do in the (laughs) lab to get waxy maize and then make it into that, this weird sounding name? And I mean, you know, I took organic chemistry back in the day, but so I understand it to a degree, but it's just, you know, I'm, I'm a little bit skeptical of I'm open to things, but I'm a little bit skeptical when people start playing around with chemistry and come up with something that's a little bit better or they're purported to be a little bit better. I agree. I agree. Definitely. Well, cool. Joel, this has been an amazing conversation. Like always, we have so many topics. We could just go on for hours and talk about hanging band training and bottoms up kettlebell training and all the other amazing things that you're doing right now. We'll just have to set up another one, my man. Oh, for sure, man. Anytime. All right. Well, if you want to learn more about Dr. Joel Seedman, make sure you go to advancedhumanperformance.com. That is the place. Joel, is there anywhere else where you'd like them to go to see what you're up to? Yeah, that's the main one. You got, you know, I kind of started some of my social media stuff a little bit more heavily uh, the last five or six months, which has uh, definitely been good. So, you know, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, but yeah, advanced human performance is the main one. And like I mentioned earlier, I'm, I'm working on my, uh, my big book on eccentric isometrics and it's going to be a, a, a whopper of a, of a read. It's going to be pretty thick, pretty heavy, but also, um, I think people are going to find it very applicable and, uh, very effective. So I can't wait for that, Joel. I have your, foot and ankle training manual, just incredible stuff, stuff that I've been using with my clients. And they've been amazed that at, uh, you know, it's funny. I I don't want to start another conversation here because we'll just keep going and going. But I had some clients who were having trouble with their knees, having trouble with their backs. And I noticed they, they were overpronated, right? I mean, I don't, I don't measure it. I'm not a physical therapist. It's not what I do, but I could tell it was not off that they had weak feet. Let's just put it that way. And they were having a lot of trouble standing on one foot. And once we got that dialed and then all of a sudden, all these other things are getting better and their golf game is getting better and they're better able to plant themselves when they serve for tennis or, or return you know, a ball in tennis and, and, you know, they're complaining of less achiness and joint pain all because of these improved foot and ankle mechanics. So make sure you go to advancedhumanperformance.com. Check out what Joel has going on. Just incredible wealth of information, the products. I own that. I own a couple other things, a couple of your workouts, just great quality information applicable, practical, and most importantly, results-oriented. And Joel, I can't wait for your book, man. I am super psyched to read that. We'll definitely do another eccentric isometrics episode. I'm, I'm all about it, man. Awesome, man. Well, thanks so much for having me on again. Absolutely. We'll talk soon. Sounds good. Take care. Welcome to the Ted's Takeaway portion of the interview. And wow, I've got to say, what 
another information-packed interview with Dr. Joel Seidman. Just an incredible guy, super generous with his knowledge and his time, back again to help you get the best out of your nutrition and training and supplementation, right? We covered it all in this episode, and I'm going to keep the takeaways very brief. In fact, there's just going to be one takeaway, and that is, is what you're doing working? Are your workouts making you stronger? Are they helping you look better? Are they helping you feel better? Because if they're not, then there's a problem. You should be getting results from what you're doing. And if you're not getting those results, something is wrong. Are you getting results from your nutrition? You should not only look good from your nutrition. There's no, well, I eat healthy, but I'm just 20 pounds overweight. That's not healthy, okay? I don't care whose plan you're following. It's wrong, okay? You shouldn't be 20 pounds overweight if you're following a solid nutrition program, okay? Be results-oriented. Make sure you're getting the right results. And if you're not, time to change something. Follow some of what Joel Seidman said in this interview. Follow some of my recommendations, but try something different if what you're doing isn't working. Because if you're doing the same thing and it's been months and you're experiencing the same results, like one of our clients did this one workout, it was a 21-day fix and she did it for six months and she wasn't seeing results. Or some of my, my male clients who... They weren't lifting the weights that they should have. They weren't getting the results that they should have. And now they're lifting bigger weights. They're doing pull-ups with their body weight. We've had people go from 10 to 2 to, I was 10 pull-ups. I was gonna, I was getting things backward. From 2 pull-ups to 10 pull-ups in a set in a matter of months. Those are the types of results you should be getting. And if you're not getting those, it's time to try something different. So, That's the thought that I want to leave you with. If you want to check out our workouts, make sure you go to legendarylifepodcast.com. Check out our legendary workout. If you're looking to do your first body weight dip or pull up, look into our muscle building workout. If you want a challenging, and I do mean challenging workout that will help you build strength and build muscle because it gets you strong and bigger okay, or your money back. And I'm 100% with that. Also, we have a fat loss program that is more designed to challenge you in a more, I want to say an energy system way. It's going to push you in other words, but it's going to push you in an intelligent way, not hopping around like a fool to some of those follow along workouts. Not that, you know, if that's your thing and it's working for you, there's anything wrong with that. But if you're looking for something that would truly challenge you, check out our workouts at legendarylifepodcast.com. Click on the store and read about the different offers and see if there's one that makes sense for you. That's all I've got. I hope you enjoyed this episode. It's so much fun doing this and speaking to these experts and helping get this good information out to you. That said, have an amazing week and I'll speak to you soon. 